Let's talk about sarcoma, a podcast that looks at the expected, the unexpected, and everything in between post-sarcoma diagnosis. Brought to you by Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation. With me, your host, Michael Whipper-Whipfley. And me, Catherine Mahoney. In this episode, we chat to some incredible people who share their sarcoma journey from the heart. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hi, hi, Kath. Good, thank you. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Sarah, and a, a little bit about your sarcoma journey. Uh, yeah, so I was diagnosed last year at the age of 40. Um, I'm a mum with two children, uh, a girl 12 and a boy 10. Um, I work for the government. Um, I guess I'm a public servant. Um, and yeah, last year, uh, not long after my 40th birthday, was when uh, I noticed uh, a large lump and, and a few other things happening and went to the doctor and yeah, found out that it was osteosarcoma. Wow. So, so, so take me back a bit. How did you, you know, did the lump sort of, did it pop out straight away? Did it take some time? Um, I, I didn't really know it was there. I'd, I'd been having a lot of um, back pain, which wasn't mm-hmm. unusual for me. I've always had, um, you know, tight muscles in my my back and poor posture. But um, my daughter was actually helping me uh, put some deep heat onto my back, and she said, "Oh, you've got a bit of a lump back here." And I thought, "Oh, okay, yeah, well, I'll you know worry about that later." Um, and then. I was probably a month, a month or so after that. It just started um, getting larger and larger, and, and ended up quite a substantial size, kind of yeah, sticking out the side of my left ribs. So, so you had something sort of quite obvious to present to a doctor. Yes, yeah, and um, and when you felt it, it, it was a weird thing to feel because it was kind of hard, but. But you couldn't really push down on it. Like it was a very weird, um, weird thing to feel. And, and no one, well, I mean, my doctor, my GP, she had absolutely no idea what it was and sent me off to get the get an X-ray and an ultrasound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no one really knew what it was, but they knew it didn't look good. <laughs> like it, was, it shouldn't have been there. Yes. Yeah. So you had yeah. the ultrasound. Was there was the diagnosis quite quick after that? Um, it, it was. So I went, uh, Friday morning, um, before I went to work, I went to the uh, ultrasound and the nurse doing the ultrasound, I could tell it wasn't good just from the, the tone of her voice and, and the way she was asking me questions. And then she just said, look, I'm sending you straight next door for a CT. Um, I left there. I, a bit nervous, but I went went into work, um, and my doctor phoned me um, and said, "I need you to come in. I've made an appointment for you today. I need you to come in." Um, so I basically just ran out of work, <laughs> drove to the doctor, met my husband there, and and she said, "Look, um, she said it's osteosarcoma. I've been on the phone with the local specialist. They're going to try and refer you." And yeah, she said, "We don't know how bad it is, but it's bad." Wow. I mean, you know, you were an otherwise healthy young person. And as a 45 year old, I can say you are young at 40. Um, <laughs> how did you feel when, you know, when you heard osteosarcoma? Um, uh, I just, I don't, I don't know. I think like I knew osteo means bone mm-hmm. and I guess I kind of 
freaked out initially because, you know, you always hear a lot of people, particularly like if they've had breast cancer and it metastasizes into bone cancer and, and that's often, you know, terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and she's, but she said, no, no, like this is different. This isn't a, a secondary cancer. This, you know, this is where it started. It's, it's not as bad as what you think right now. Um, but yeah, it just took, a lot to um, to process. I, I guess you just kind of numb. Mm, I, bet. <laughs> uh, I think yeah. I think I just came home and just um, got in the shower and just stayed in the shower for a really long time. Just yeah, trying to process what I'd been told. Mm. Wow. Did you did you feel that you're well informed by the clinicians and then your MDT going into treatment? Uh, so in a way, I guess I felt. I felt a little bit disconnected because my GP ref, like did the referral, uh, and so then I had all of my treatment uh, down in Sydney with the the specialists there. Um, but then when I would come home, I I didn't really have a close point of contact here, so mm-hmm. I'd have to. I often was admitted to a local hospital. After treatment, um, because of all the side effects and and um, infections and things, and and yeah, I didn't have a, a doctor there in the hospital with me at that point. So, like, it was funny. Like, I was almost being treated in two different um, two different hospitals. So, how long? How much time elapsed between you know diagnosis and the commencement of your treatment? Treatment, yeah. So. After the, the the first um discussion with my doctor and being told that, um, I think it was a week, a week, maybe a week and a half, um, before we were having MRI scan, PET scan, um, and then the actual biopsy. Mm-hmm. Um and then I started the first round of chemo um before the end of May. So it was I think mm, yeah, probably Exactly a month. Um, I'd finished the first round of the chemo from um, from the day I'd been told that what was going on. It was pretty quick. It was, and I, I wonder. I mean, because it was so large, <laughs> um, it was obvious it was um, fairly advanced. Mm-hmm. And I, and I'm, I think also like having the two young children. I think my GP fought really hard to make sure that things got moving as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very quick. Um, how many surgeries have you had, Sarah, since diagnosis? Uh, so I had the surgery for the biopsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also had uh, I had a it was called plur- pleurodesis, so like a surgery around the uh, lining of my lung. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to have that done because part of um, part of my cancer was I had a lot of. Well, it was about three liters, I think, all up of fluid in my lung that had to be drained, and then they had to operate on the lining to try to seal that up and, and stop the fluid from coming back. Uh, and then I had the um, the major surgery in October last year to remove the the tumor. Wow! So lots, lots, lots of stuff going on. Um, how yeah. did you position your diagnosis with your friends? Um, yeah, that was a tough one. <laughs> Um, so a couple of close friends, um, I just, uh, I messaged them while I was down in Sydney and just said, look, I'm not really quite sure how to say it, but, um, just so you know, um, I'm currently 
in hospital having treatment for, for cancer. Um, yeah, and one of them, um, she was really great. Uh, unfortunately, she lost her father to cancer when she was um, a teenager, so she kind of knew a bit about you know what I was going through and mm-hmm. and and how to react. Um, a few others were just, you know, it was it was hard for them. Like they just didn't really, I guess, want to think think about it. Yes, <laughs> um, I kind yeah. of found like I became almost like a walking example of like the worst case scenario, and they people didn't want to think that someone their age could be going through this. Mm. Like it's almost, overwhelming, um, isn't it? And it's you sort yeah, of you don't know how you'd handle it if it was your friend, I guess, until you're no. in that situation. A lot of people, as soon as they heard, you know, they they wanted to just come around almost like they felt they had to come and just say hi. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and and so I in a way I almost felt a bit of pressure because I was like, I actually don't it took a while to adjust to how I felt about everything and, and you know, the, the lack of hair and all of those things. You kind of felt a bit like, I don't really want to see people right now, but no. yeah. Well, you don't want to see your friends when you've got the flu, let alone you yeah. going through chemo, you know, and it's a right. massive <laughs> journey ahead of you. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting because I think it's a mix of people don't know what to do or what to say, um, mm. you know, and, and almost you need a bit of a, a support group around you that are kind of the gatekeepers keepers at times too you know no yeah, you're not feeling right. well so you you know don't feel that you need to see these people today and and, and whatnot um mm, yeah. do you feel that you know how has cancer changed your life Sarah um yeah it's a funny one because I guess you just kind of like I mean it's one of those things I think people say it a lot like you know you don't you don't know how important things are and how you just have to live in the moment and like those kind of sayings. Mm. Um, and I think you don't really, you can't really understand it until you've been through something like cancer because mm-hmm. you just have a different perspective on things. Like I just, um, just so much more relaxed about things in a way because <laughs> I'm just like, well, you know, it could be worse. Yes. And yeah. Do you miss anything in particular about pre-sarcoma life? Um, yeah, look, I don't <laughs> – it's a bit funny because life's a bit different now for mm-hmm. everyone with, with COVID and the way that things have changed that way. Um, I guess maybe one thing would be planning for things. Um, I don't really <sighs> – like I still make plans, but not to the same extent because one thing that I learned through um, all of my treatments and the side effects is that you just don't you, – while you're going through it from one hour to the next, you don't know what's going to happen. Like your doctor rings you up and says, I've got those blood test results. You need to go to the hospital now. And, you know, so anything that you had planned for that day is just out the window. Mm-hmm. So I guess – yeah, in a way, I miss having a, a bit of that certainty, but mm. um, I can't really pinpoint anything specific that I miss. <laughs> but that's um, good. That's yeah, good. <laughs> I think. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I'm just doing what I was doing before, but yeah. just a bit. Yeah, just a bit more philosophical about things now, yes. I guess. Which mm. is not a bad thing, you know. It, I think it's uh, we can all take a leaf out of your book when it comes to that and slowing mm. down. And I think, you know, as you said with COVID, everything has sort of changed that we knew 
Um, yeah. And there is something quite lovely about the slowing down, isn't there, of, of where we've been the last sort of four months. You're like, oh, everything still happens and I don't have to run around like a, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, we, oh, actually, sorry, that yeah. is, sorry, mm-hmm. that is one one thing that has changed. You've just, just reminded me. <laughs> um, so I I didn't drive at all while I was going through my treatment. Um, well, how did so that I feel? feel yeah, well, I didn't feel confident to do it because okay. the side effects, they knocked me around so much. Mm-hmm. Like I, I would get dizzy just standing up and walking, you know, from the table to the sink. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't want to drive because I was worried that, you know, if I had had a dizzy spell or felt, you know, felt sick, it could, you know, cause an accident mm-hmm. or, or something could happen. So I guess I felt like a little bit like I did lose some independence for a while. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I could still use public transport, like I, I caught the buses and things, but yeah, yeah, it just kind of limited me a little bit in terms of yeah, yeah just being able to jump in the car and go. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because I actually, um, I actually had a, a fracture in my foot um, not long ago. Um, so that put me out of driving again for another six weeks. Oh, you're back. Um, you're back on the roads though. I am now. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And was yep. the fracture not connected? Um, look, to be honest, I don't think it's hard to say because, um, the fracture, it was the fracture of the fifth metatarsal, which is apparently very common and mm-hmm. happens to a lot of people. And you know, when you see everyone in a moon boot, yeah, I've done um, it. Yep. But potentially, um, the chemo, whether or not it maybe affected my bone strengths or anything like that, it's, who's to say? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'm sure. But I guess that's another thing you always worry now. Oh, is that cancer related or is that just yes. something that? And that happens? must, that mm-hmm. must just be normal. That must just be, you know, part of, of the journey you're on now. You're always going to kind of second guess things and, and you can't wait around. You know, if you need something checked, you need to go and get it checked. Yeah, that's right. Um, Sarah, were you offered any external pastoral or practical support, you know, like from canteen or a sarcoma not for profits or cancer council? Oh, uh, so I was given a lot of uh, a lot of pamphlets and, mm-hmm. and information that way for the cancer council and canteen. Mm-hmm. Um, so my daughter, she was well, she turned twelve while it was all happening, and, and once she turned twelve, she was eligible to contact canteen. Mm-hmm. She had the option to to join up with them and connect with people there, and um, she she was reluctant to do that. She. I think it was more she felt that she didn't really want to draw attention to herself and what was happening. Mm-hmm. But what I found, and I, I mean, I had the support of um, the sarcoma nurses, but I guess what I found in terms of support is just um, a complete lack of groups to reach out to. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of the, you know, the, the cancers that are more common um, have huge networks and particularly like breast cancer and um, there's so many forums, so many groups, so many people who, you know, just know someone else who's been through that experience. But when you say the word osteosarcoma, people are like, what? Never heard of it. <laughs> um, so it's difficult to find people who have been through the same experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we, we're certainly hoping that this podcast, um, you know, which will go live throughout July for um, Sarcoma Awareness Month can really be a good 
um, tool for people to to really kind of connect and reach out and understand a bit more because there isn't a lot of information and, and a lot of groups out there. No, and and I found the socket to sarcoma group. I found them just searching online, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, they was a really the only group within Australia that I I found. So I know they've got people in a lot of different states, and mm-hmm. yeah, because we're just so spread out because there's so few of us. Yes. <laughs> What opportunities were you offered during and post-treatment from a, an exercise or mental health, you know, or nutrition point of view? Mm-hmm. Uh, so while I was going through treatment, um, I spoke with uh, psychologists. Um, so they would just come and speak to me, um, make sure I was okay. Uh, nutritionists also came and spoke with me when you, know, you started rapidly losing weight when mm-hmm. you you just can't eat because of the chemo. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I guess that was probably one thing that was missing. So when, you know, after the surgery and all the treatment was over, um, that was kind of it in mm-hmm. terms of seeing the specialists. Um, so I, I went myself to um, my local physio and just said, look, you know, have you got any advice on what you know, might be good for me in terms of trying to build back up my muscle strength and things. Um, so that was probably the one thing that was a bit a bit light on in mm-hmm. terms of the, the support. Yeah, just not knowing what to do after the surgery in particular. Um, what were the major challenges that you experienced um, when it came to work and family life? Mm. Um so I was really, and, and still am really lucky, um, I mean, I work for the government, so uh, there's um, there's a lot of, well, there were a lot of options um, available. So I've been back at work since um, since February. Okay. And um, just I'm just doing a couple of hours on three days a week, so just starting really slow and, and building back up. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've been really supportive in terms of, of letting me take it Take it slowly. Um, I have I've found you you do get exhausted um, when you you first go back, and each time you add a little bit extra, it's it's exhausting again. While you keep building up your your stamina to mm-hmm. to do the work, um, I found I, I don't like people say I'm being a bit too hard on myself, but personally, I feel like my brain just doesn't move quite as quickly as it did before. Um, I guess that's after, you know, <laughs> eight months of treatment and feeling like a zombie in, in yes, hospital beds. Yeah. But, yeah, I I feel, I don't feel that I'm quite at the same level that I used to be. And, and I know that sometimes I do still struggle to find the right words. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also, part of the side effect of the chemo was I have had a bit of impact uh, on my hearing. In a way, now things are almost back to, to normal. Um, it it was so fantastic that my mum was able to come and stay with us for a few months because she was able to keep things on track and, and keep the kids feeling like life was, was fairly normal. They still got to, you know, go and do their um, uh, tennis lessons and they still got to go to their cricket games and, and all of those things that otherwise, you know, would have been really quite difficult to to keep up at the same level. Mm-hmm. So big shout out to your mum is what we're saying, isn't it, in a nutshell? Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> Mums <sure>. are the <laughs> best. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sarah, what would your final message uh, be to someone who's listening who might have recently been diagnosed with sarcoma? Um, 
yeah, that's that's a good question. <laughs> um, you just do whatever you have to do to first of all um, process what you've been told, and just take it easy. Like it's it's happening. You can't worry about what you might have done or if you brought this on yourself in any way because you didn't. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those things. It's just happened. And unfortunately, I like to think, um, I think the figure is that 1% of adult cancers is sarcoma. So I like to think we're the one percenters, we're the unique people and we just have to to deal with this. It's just yeah, just something that's happened to us because we're just unique for some reason. For all um, the right reasons. And you will get through it. <laughs> for all the right reasons I think you're unique. Um Sarah, thank you so much for being so honest and open. Um you know, this is a very recent journey for you and your family. Mm. So I really appreciate you being able to share and, and joining us on the podcast. No, no problem. Thanks so much for, for letting me be a part of it. Thank um, you. Great. Thanks, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast, Jack. Good to be here. Lovely to have you. Thank you. Um, now, before we get into it, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm 23. Uh, I finished Sydney Commerce degree at Sydney last year, working as a as an analyst at Quartermath this year. I uh, love cricket, love golf, uh, and I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma in 2017. Um, there's obviously a lot to your story. Um, before we get into um, the situation you're in at the moment, Jack, I think it's worth going back to a couple of other things and a few interests that you have. Um, if I mentioned Billy Elliot, I think that's worth the mention. Um, can you tell us about Billy Elliot and the performance you did? Wow, that's a long time ago. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, that's true. I was in my, my son loves Billy Elliot. Yeah, I was in the elective dance group at primary school. Good. We did a Billy Elliot rendition, Electricity, I think it was. Okay, fantastic. So I was a, a dancing boxer, yeah. Oh, you were a dancing boxer, just I, I like was, Billy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I love that. Did that lead to further performances? No, I think that was probably the highlight. That was? Yeah, that <laughs> was the peak of my dancing <laughs> career, I'd it was say. all downhill yeah. after the Billy The rest Elliot. was terrible performances at, uh, yeah, at nightclubs. it was a so. short-lived career. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let Ted know that, you know, there is a great life on stage with Billy Elliot because <laughs> that's his dream at the moment. My yeah. little five-year-old, that's exciting to know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you were 20 when you were diagnosed. Yeah. How, how did you compute such a diagnosis when you were fit and healthy? Yeah, it was definitely a shock. Um, yeah, I was fit and healthy um, and just never thought about cancer in my world. Not, you know, never knew anyone my age that had had it or like, yeah, it just took me weeks probably to even get my head around that like I, I remember getting told that you know I, I went in thinking I had like a bone spur or had torn a muscle or something and the x-ray came out with a tumor and I just like yeah I, I honestly couldn't tell you what happened I think I just sat there and for 20 minutes probably and he just sort of talked me through what it was and yeah 
just complete shock, really. Jack, was it sore? I mean, was it a, a, an ongoing niggling pain that you had in your leg? or? Yeah, it was. It, like, um, I'd had surgery on my other knee, um, just a minor meniscus repair, and sort of in the sort of few weeks after that, my other leg got a bit sore. But, you know, I asked the physio about it and he sort of said, oh, that's that's normal, like you're, you're compensating on it. And so there was pain. It wasn't excruciating. It was sort of just during the night, like when I woke up and just before I went to bed, it was bad. But it, it wasn't massive pain. But, yeah, there was something there. Mm. Did you talk to your mum, Susie, who's, who's also with us? Welcome, Susie. Hey, Susie. Hi. Um, yeah, I did. Like I just mentioned, yeah, I got, got a sore leg. And she said, oh, just ask the physio. And yeah, yeah, whatever. That's all good. Um, and I remember because I went in to, to see the doctor on my own that day and then I had to call mum. I think she was about to walk into the tennis court. And I said, oh, I think you should come in. I've got another scan. She's like, oh, I'm about to. Can, I, can we do this later? <laughs> Priorities. Um, <laughs> And I was like, oh, yeah, I think they found a tumor. And I think she just, I don't know, just didn't compute. Like, she's like, uh, what? Like, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was a shock for all of us, really. Yeah, Susie, how did you cope? How did you sort of take it on board? Oh, the news was like being king hit. You're just totally flawed and, yeah, comes from nowhere, comes from behind. And, yeah, you have to just pick yourself up. Jack was obviously on his own when he found out, so that wasn't ideal. So I didn't play tennis. <laughs> I, did, I did go and pick him up, but yeah, we just we were all numb for and terrified for a few days. I think after about three days, I realised I was hardly breathing. I was so uptight and tense just mm. for the all the unknowns that were coming our way and jack when you the tumor that they found mm. it was it on the spot then that they told you that it was a cancer or sort of so the where i initially found it was my orthopedic surgeon so he he basically said that's that's a bone cancer but i'll get you an appointment with an oncologist so sort of there was sort of two or three days where i knew it was a tumor i didn't really know what i didn't even know what it was called really and yeah, I didn't really think about it much, but we didn't really know a lot at all at that point. And then um, when I saw the oncologist at Lifehouse, he sort of explained to me what was called an osteosarcoma and, you know, it was a cancer of the bone and, and all this sort of stuff. So it was a couple of days after that I found out sort of the full info. Did did you both hit Google? Because, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know what sarcoma was, and you know, until a few years ago. I I didn't. Mm -hmm. um, I'd never heard of sarcoma, but I don't know. I think I didn't really want to know. No. Like I think for me, I was happy just to whatever the doctor had told me, I sort of was happy with that and that was sort of all I needed to know. But I, I Googled madly. Yeah. <laughs> Can't help I, yes. Well, because I think we found out on a Wednesday that he had cancer, but we didn't know what sort. So it was Friday by the time we saw the the um, orthopedic the other orthopedic surgeon and I'd been googling madly and I'd narrowed it down to two um, and I was terrified but I'm also the sort of person who keeps looking at weather reports until I find one I like so I did the <laughs> same with that mm -hmm. I just kept googling information until I found something I could live with um, mm. not that it was ideal but yeah. Were you given a lot of um, material from the doctors and the specialists? I think so. I think 
Um, it's a long time ago now, but I think we had a really thorough rundown that first day with the oncologist and the orthopedic surgeon. He, he sort of said, you know, this is what treatment's going to look like for the next while. This is like we're going to do surgery. We're going to um, – and sort of gave us some info about a sarcoma in general. But um, I suppose that was that was sort of it. There wasn't a lot of like – handouts or or so he didn't we didn't really get directed to other information i think um which which like for me wasn't an issue i was sort of happy with the info we got but yeah that was did um what were the next steps so you 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 know you've been diagnosed you were told the plan how quickly did things get moving after that it was pretty good it was pretty quick so i think from that day um maybe five or a week maybe later I had a biopsy and then about a week after that started chemotherapy. Was, is it, a, a, I mean, if you talk about a spot where you thought was a spur in the, in the leg, was it you needed to say or your yeah, leg? Just above my leg. Just yeah. above it. Was that operable? Could they go in and cut that section out and sort of hope for the best? I mean, I know that's coming from a very uneducated point, but, yeah. you know, in your mind you think, oh, I'll cut it out and move on. Yeah, I remember initially like, sort of not being that worried because I figured it was in my leg. Worst case, I'd just get rid of my leg. You know what I mean? Like it was sort of um, – but, yeah, basically, yes. Like the 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 spot that I could feel and the, like the reason they thought it was a bone spur was because the cancer had sort of got out of the bone and it started making a lump on the end of the bone basically. So that was the lump I could feel. Um, so I had a couple of months of chemotherapy and then, uh, yeah, I had surgery and I basically just went in and removed, um, 20 centimeters of my femur and my knee and just put in a prosthesis. Um, yeah. So basically got the clear margins with the surgery. Right. And then chemotherapy was basically to clean up whatever. Anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. But we were, we were also very lucky as soon as Jack was diagnosed on that first day when we saw the, orthopedic surgeon, um, he did say to us that because of where Jack's sarcoma was, um, it, he had a really good prospect to get through it all because it was operable, they can replace it, and at, where they'd got it reasonably early. So we were very optimistic from the beginning, which was good. Mm. You were studying at the time, weren't you? Did, did all of that have to stop? Did you have the energy to keep going? Yeah, I deferred study. So, yeah, I was going to my third year of uni. Um, thankfully, found out before classes had started. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I basically, the advice they gave me was definitely defer first semester and see how you're feeling about next semester because that was sort of six months down the track. Um, and I knew a couple of months in that I wasn't going to be able to do it. Mm. Chemotherapy really knocked me around. I was really nauseous a lot of the time and... Um, I, I think for me it was good to just have time, not feel like I had to rush to get back to anything. No, don't put the pressure so, on So, yeah, I took, took the full year off uni. Yeah. Um, Lily and Harry, how are they going? How are they going with Big Brother? Yeah, they're good. They all right? Yeah. They're um, a pretty tight bunch. Are they? It was a tough year for them, though. Yeah, it was, sure. um Yeah, it was pretty devastating. Mm, that was tough. Yeah, I think one of the worst things is, is – Obviously, you find out and then you have to tell everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I remember, like, so when I found out, I was supposed to be um, in Japan with four of my best mates from school and our brothers, um, but I couldn't ha- couldn't go because of my other knee. 
Sonia, my own brother, was overseas, so we had to tell him over the phone, which is really tricky. It's tough news to give in person, mm, but hard mm. to give over the phone. And yeah, all, all that was very um, difficult. But and did you did you sort of say to them, look, it's business as usual. I don't want anybody. I mean, I don't. I'm, I'm picturing how I might approach it if it was me. But you know, you want life to to carry on as as normal. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And my friends were really good with that. Like. I don't think they treated me differently. It was still, you know, when we hung out, it was mm-hmm. still ripped into it. Talking about stupid things I did on the weekend, so mm-hmm. that was really good because you, you want to feel normal. I think that's the hardest thing during that whole time. Hundred percent, nothing feels normal. So, yeah, I think we decided early, like straight away, that we wanted it to be as positive as we could make it. So, um, we wanted a positive message out there that Jack's not a victim. Mm-hmm. He's done nothing wrong. It's nothing to be ashamed of. So we got on the front foot and mm-hmm. he told everyone straight out what was going on, what was involved. Mm-hmm. So, and we told all our friends the same. And I think that, um, it made it easier for everyone to ask questions and be involved. And they were, everyone, we were just so lucky. Everyone was so supportive. All of Jack's friends, our friends and, a lot of our friends are parents of Jack's friends, so there was a huge support network behind us, um, which yeah. made the whole journey a lot easier. I sort of initially was quite reluctant to want to tell everyone. Sort of like my initial reaction was sort of like, this is my thing and I'll just do it and, and that'll be okay. But mum and dad sort of said to me, which was good advice, like this is when you really need your mates. And That's a great point. I, mm. I think it was... Um, really good to just be upfront about it like i i think i posted it on facebook just so i got the same message out to everyone and everyone sure. knew the same thing and um, that was full on because you get flooded with stuff for a little while but i think that was the best thing because then, then everyone knew and everyone yeah like mum said could ask questions and yeah absolutely Jack, you speak a lot don't you publicly about um your journey has that helped you process your situation? I think so, yeah. I, I, for a while, I didn't want to think about it. Um, and for about, it was about a year after treatment, I really tried to just not think about cancer at all and distance myself from it, um, which which I probably needed to do um, and start to feel normal again. But, um, yeah, an opportunity came up to speak at uh, an NRL dinner that the Cooper Operating Foundation was hosting. Um, so I said yes to that and basically just told my story and, um, yeah, found it really helpful. And, and, and since then I have become more involved with the foundation uh, as the patient advocate now. So I've put, yeah, spoken a few more times and I think for me, it, yeah, helpful for me. And I think as well, like it's a, it's not a fun experience, but it, for me, it feels like it's very good to use that. To help others, I think otherwise it feels like, you know, you go through that for nothing mm. almost. So, yeah, if I can use that experience and, and if that's helpful for others to hear about it, then, yeah, that's definitely helpful for me. So it must be um, it must be amazing to see the strength of Jack when he's up there, when he's making speeches like that, being able to talk about something that is uh, so heavy in a sense and such a courageous thing to go through. It must be really moving as a parent. Oh, absolutely. It's, well, 
But it doesn't surprise us because we've watched him the whole way through. He's been so courageous. Um, he's taken everything with so much grace and, um, yeah, we're constantly amazed and we think we're supporting him, but a lot of the time his strength is sort of carrying us all through. So, yeah, that's fantastic. What final message would you um, leave recently diagnosed patients with who are listening to the podcast? Um, I'm sure that a lot of people will say be positive, um, which is very easy to hear, but it is true. I think that you sort of need to find the people that give you energy and and they'll make themselves known as well. Um, I think... um, and I can only speak for myself, but I don't think I would change what happened. Um, and I've spoken to a few other people who feel the same way. It's obviously you no know, getting around the fact that there's some very hard days and very tough times. But what well, can you expand on that, Jack? Yeah, like I, I think the way I the relationships I have with my friends now and um, and, and my family as well, we're so close and so. Probably, well, definitely a lot closer since then. Um, and I think, you know, I feel like I've been able to have some really meaningful experiences through the foundation and, and meeting seriously amazing people in hospital and people who've gone through the same thing. And, and all of those sorts of things would not have happened. To the world it's opened up yeah, to like you. I, I wouldn't sit here today and, and wish that my brother got it. But no. But sitting here now, I, I wouldn't reverse it all because I think, yeah, I really appreciate all the things that my friends do and have done for me. And, yeah, I think, I yeah, I suppose I just see things a, a bit differently. I, yeah. When we were talking to, um, to Mitch, mm-hmm. um, he was discussing uh, how – uh, he was just angry. Mm. He was angry for Coop, um, but Cooper wasn't, you know. He wasn't in that headspace. Um, you, you seem so calm about everything, you know, and what, what you've been through. You know, that's something to really admire. I mean, you must have had days where you were, you know, pissed off and angry. Yeah, I think so. I think it was almost easier to be going through it than watching it. Um, I think, like, for me, and I think a lot of people would, it's it's easy to say for me, but I think it is so hard to watch someone do that and feel a bit helpless. Like I could sort of I knew it and I knew what I was doing and that was tough. Definitely those days where I just was so over it. Yeah, I babe. think you know, on the fourth cycle of chemo or whatever. Oh, just, just feeling rotten. Vomiting every day and yeah, I definitely was so over it. How, how do you find the strength to go through that, Jack? Like, do you just know that tomorrow is another day and this will pass? Is that what you kind of held on to? Pretty much. Just a day at a time, an hour at a time sort of thing at some points. Like, uh, I was lucky that, you know, everything was positive and there was a light at the end of the tunnel and every time we went through it, it was everything that was hap- supposed to happen was happening. And But, yeah, at some points it really is just, get to the next hour, get to... God, that's courageous. I don't know. You don't have a choice at that point, so... And, Mum, you were obviously always there. You know, God, as he said, as Jack's saying, you know, it'd be harder. And I I very quickly jumped to being a parent. Yes. And in my mind, I go, yeah, I'll take it over the kids any day. Oh, well, I But you've got to sit there and and try and support When you're young, I think you 
you feel invincible. You can take anything on and then you become a parent and you know the world can hurt you now. Yeah. Because anything that happens to them is, yeah, all you want to do is protect them and Mm. keep them safe. And sometimes you just can't, but all you can do is be there for them and get them through it as best you can. And I think we just established a great, we had a great support network around us. Jack's friends were absolutely incredible. Um, our friends were incredible. And I think that's, it's like a huge team effort and you just, mm. you know, one step at a time is so true. You just start walking and you hope that team picks you up when you stumble and you just keep going because you can't stop. There's only one way through it. So, yeah. I love the bond that you guys have. You it's know. very special. We spent a, we spent a, a, we spent a, a year together. And Jack says that with half a smile. Yeah, but I, I know what you're talking about. I mean, not regretting in a sense where you've ended up because you know how often do you get this with your mum? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I consider I'm the luckiest mum. I had. He, a 20-year-old son who was locked in a room with me <laughs> for the best part of the year. But it was there were some lovely things to come out of it. There was I got to know all of his friends so much yep. better than yep. I would sure. have and I was injected right in his world and they were so generous. And I used to know when to make myself scarce. Mm. But, um, no, it was lovely and we didn't talk all the time. But yeah. just being together was enough to know that mm. there was someone there. Um so, no, I, I consider we're I love very, that. very lucky. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Both have a, an incredible outlook on what must have been a very difficult journey, but you've been able to bring as much light and positivity into mm. it as you can. Yeah. Oh. We need to be more like that. Perhaps yeah, you and I really your, need to work on our life. Your mum never liked you. That's <laughs> <laughs> different. Oh, she that? did. She just moved me to Australia yeah. and stayed in England. Yeah, they, it's fine. They both um, pushed you out of the country, yeah, so that's thanks. fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Jack um, and Susie, an absolute pleasure to talk to you both. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thanks, Thank thanks for sharing, guys. Thank you. Much appreciated. Chloe, um, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to have you on. Thank you for having me and hello. Where are we talking to you from? Whereabouts in Australia are you? So I'm located in Victoria. Now, Chloe, tell tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so I'm 30 years old and I live out here with my husband, Brad, and my 16-month-old daughter, Elise. And how did you start on, the, on your sarcoma journey? So um, I guess my story is a little bit different um, to most people. Um, I, when I was 12 years old, I was diagnosed with an epithelioid sarcoma in my right middle finger. Um, I was very fortunate at that time. I only needed surgery to remove um, the tumour and I didn't need any chemotherapy or radiotherapy at the time. It was basically um, just follow-up of scans for five years. By the time I was 17, I was um by the time I was 17, I was given the all clear for being sarcoma free. So five years on. Five years on, mm-hmm. yes. Um, however, fast forward 17 years, um, November 2019, I was diagnosed with a non-typical Ewing sarcoma in my right thigh and in my right lymph nodes in the groin. And how was that picked up? I mean, do you have to have regular scans <clears throat> and tests since your 12-year-old diagnosis? No. So basically, um, I had a lump in my thigh um, when I was heavily pregnant with Elise. 
it started off quite small. Um, it wasn't painful. I didn't think much of it. I thought mm, could be to do with a bit of pregnancy hormones, everything expanding, and it was very hot. Um, she was a summer baby. However, after I had a leave, um, the lump was not going down. It was getting larger. So I thought um, by the time I had ventured out of the house with a six-month-old, <laughs> we went to the doctors and um, basically my GP sent me for a ultrasound. Um, and at the time of the ultrasound, the doctor that came in who was meant to do a needle biopsy basically said, I'm not touching that, you need to go to Melbourne. And that's when I knew uh-oh, it could be something a bit more severe. So that was back in November last year? Yes, yeah. it was. So yeah. so from some, I guess, from diagnosis to treatment, was it was it a quicker process because you'd had sarcoma when you were younger? Um, basically, it was kind of, they had trouble determining basically how I had formed another sarcoma. Um, they were trying to see if it was linked to the original one I had in my finger, but it had nothing to do with that. Um, it was basically a 3% they were waiting on um, before they could try treatment. And the, was obviously the avenue to go down was either chemotherapy or radiation. I was actually prepped for both. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I we finally got the phone call. It was on my 30th birthday. <laughs> Oh, dearie me. Yeah, they were going to start treatment. Um, But my oncologist was like, no, we will um, put it back two days. (laughs) So on the 4th of December, I had the port put in and started treatment that day. So it was basically about three weeks um, once they got that 3% back that it was a non-typical Ewing's. Mm -hmm. Um, They started treatment and it was basically treatment they still treat it as a Ewing sarcoma, um, but as my oncologist said, we are hoping this regime and I guess um, type of chemotherapy should help your should you know kill off those cancer cells of the sarcoma. Mm-hmm. Um, we were very lucky that it did. <laughs> Great. So, did you have you had a lot of um, rounds of chemo since December? Yes. Yeah, so- Yes. So um, basically I have had to undergo 14 rounds of chemotherapy. So every fortnight um, and five of those are down in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. So which means I have to leave my family here, travel four hours down to Melbourne, stay there for five days and then come back. Um, But after surgery, after round six, my oncologist was happy for me to go under an oncologist and have my outpatient treatment here which has been fantastic and a lot easier <laughs> but it's a lot not for our drive I mean I know um Brad your husband works how how did you cope with such a young you know you with Elise she's you know not even what was she one then when everything started um, just when, when we got our diagnosis she was nine months old um, so basically it was a right roll head spin. Um, I, I had just pretty much become a new mum. I was just getting the hang of that and I just got the hang of it and enjoying it. And then I got this big news and I just kind of thought, oh, not again. Like, why me? Why okay. me? I've had my turn. Okay. And then it was kind of like second guessing did I not get a much of a turn last time? Is that why I'm getting another shot? Like, 
those are the things that go through your mind. Um, however, yeah, it was a huge, big shock. And I just honestly wanted to just get home and be with Elise yeah, the bet. whole time and yeah. just pretend like this wasn't even happening. <laughs> I mean, how do you process, you know, you were 12, so young and you, you know, as you said, you, you, you had a sort of lighter road than a lot of people have with your first sarcoma. How did you do process you know coming back at 30 were, were there a lot of was there a lot of support um you know mentally as well as the the treatment that you were offered um I actually think I've handled it a lot better at 30 as I did when I was 12 um when I was 12 I didn't really understand what was going on I got told I had cancer I got told this is what we're going to do um I got told you don't need to have treatment it's all out of the woods. It's all over, done. And I thought, oh, okay, great, finished. That's done. I didn't even. I don't think I even had time to process it when I was twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, coming back and being thirty and having another sarcoma diagnosis, I was, I think, a bit more prepared. Um, I guess I have a better understanding of what I guess I was in for. Um, obviously, not the treatment side of things because I had never had that. Um, but I found the support absolutely wonderful. Um, they put me all onto the right people, anyone to talk to, family, uh, support services, everything. They were just there. Um, it's been great. <laughs> I couldn't ask for a better team, to be honest. That's fantastic. Um, how, how has cancer changed your life, um, Chloe? Cause it's, you know, coming in at 12, even though you, you know, you, you got through that journey, it must still always be somewhere in the back of your head or your f- parents' head, you know, that w- will it come back? Um, I also, yes. Yeah. It has changed my life. Um, I guess when I was 12, it's like, oh, you had it when you're 12, you know, it's been so long, you'll be fine. Um, the worry I tell people is after the five-year thing, once um, you've had your follow-up for five years um, and then they obviously release you to the world, you're not under checkups all the time. So, so yeah, so it, it's a five-year window? Yeah, so yes. it's a five-year mm-hmm. window. So you're basic, you basically have follow-ups, you know, they start off at three-monthly and then go six-monthly, then yearly, um, and that carries on for five years. Um, after that window, that's when I guess cancer patients, well, I do get a bit nervous. Mm-hmm. However, though, my team has ensured me that basically will be looking after me for a long period of time. And even my orthopedic surgeon will be looking after me for a further eight years. So that's really reassuring. Um, I guess it definitely changed my life now. I think having the second diagnosis, I basically, I have a little saying, it's called live every day like it's your last. Um, And I fairly stand by that right now um, because basically uh, Brad and Elise, uh, everything to me and obviously all my family around Australia. Um, However, though, it's just taught us that you just don't know what's around the corner and honestly you just need to live your life like it is your last because you just don't know. So definitely after this, we are going to take some time out and just be a family, which will be fantastic, <laughs> and just do things that we want to do in life together. Fertility-wise, has that affected a second baby for you? or 
Um, so we don't actually know if we can have further children. Okay. Um, basically at the time of diagnosis, Mm -hmm. we like, you go through the process and, um, you go through all these things, you know, you sit there and you chat to a facility specialist and things like that. Um, and they go through, you know, what are your options? However, though, my oncologist suggested that there is no time, there was no time to retrieval of any eggs. And at the time, I thought we could be wasting two months trying to get, you know, my eggs and things happening because yeah. I was breastfeeding at the time yeah. as well. And so I had had a period. So for that to wait for all come back. Plus you could have been really so lucky clean. you had a lease. You know, I think it's different, isn't exactly. it? If you've been in a position with yes. Brad and you hadn't, then there might no. be that let's try and stop, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yes. And so basically we were told by my oncologist, he said, because you have not had your periods back, we mm-hmm. will put you on Zolodex anyway mm-hmm. um, because that will put your ovaries to sleep mm-hmm. and it shouldn't have any effect on the chemotherapy. So at that time he said we didn't have time for egg retrieval, so we didn't go down that road. And as Brad and I said, we much rather have a whole family than half a family. I was going to say, yes. Yep. I mean, look, that, and that's, so, that's not me for yeah. a throwaway line, but, you know, looking from yeah. the outside in, you'd go, there's yeah. three of you. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, exactly. That's make, exactly yes. right. Yeah. So um, obviously, yes, we would like to be parents again. Mm-hmm. Um, however, though, if things don't go the plan that they do after the Zolodex yeah, medication stops, a beautiful we've got a lease. Yes. We've got we're happy. We yeah. have a family. Um, I guess things could be a lot different. Absolutely, if we didn't have a lease. So, yeah, Chloe, it's been lovely to chat to you. I wonder, have you got anything that you'd like to pass on to somebody who's been recently diagnosed with sarcoma that's listening to the pod? Sure. Um, I guess it's a it's a bit of a follow up um, through my journey. Um, I guess I know they may be feeling a lot of emotions at the time, which is very understandable and normal. However, though, my word of advice is take each day as it comes and don't look too far ahead. You also have to keep up a positive attitude, which I know is very difficult. However, though, I have kept a very positive attitude and always looked forward and taken each day as it comes as it will help you win this battle that you're on beautiful well put chloe i think we Wonderful. can i think we can all take uh, take some wise words from from what you've just said so thank you very much for joining us no thank you very much for having me it's been Lovely. wonderful thanks chloe well welcome to the podcast luke thanks for having me Luke, tell us a little bit about yourself and your sarcoma journey. Um, I'm 33 years old, um, just uh, happily married with my wife and dog and cat. Um, and uh, with my sarcoma journey, I pretty much uh, I got diagnosed when I was tw- uh, just turned 28, um, which is generally uh, quite old for sarcomas because it's it's normally from very young age um but i did have my sarcoma since i was sort of 12 years old my primary in my hand so um i yeah the, the 28 years old i got my first headache and that was the uh the journey down the rabbit hole for me with um learning about cancer and and sarcomas in general so yeah it's uh it's been a wild ride 
I bet. I bet. Um, so was it the headaches that took you to the doctors originally? Uh, yeah. I mean, we were working in the mines up here, uh, both my partner and I, and I'd, I'd never had a headache before in my life. And um, I, I couldn't, I, I didn't take sick days at all. And um I couldn't actually physically manage to make it onto the plane. I was uh, my my head was really sore, and I didn't know what it was. So, um, walked into a random GP's office and sent me for a CT scan. And um, sure enough, the the pain in the head was like a a, a pool ball sized tumor in my head pushing against the uh, my brain. So, um, yeah, it all sort of happened pretty quickly after that. So you know you 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 know you're 28. You're healthy. You're young. You've never had a sick day. Did it knock you for six being being told that you had a, a form of cancer that you had sarcoma? Yeah, um, it was it was a long period that I probably miss. Um, my wife probably describes a bit better because you do go into so um, deep a shock. Um, I had brain surgery. They thought it was it was very unusual. Um, and then, like two and a half weeks later, I, I finally got the diagnosis that it was cancer because we we went into surgery thinking that it was just a, a benign meningioma, and um, and then two two and a half weeks later, because uh, it was so rare that they had to check and then double cross check the tissues, um, and then come back and tell me that it was a secondary tissue as well, not the primary. Um, and then yeah, that. Uh, the PET scan to follow up to see where else it was in my body and then of course that wasn't a good scan um, and yeah it just it, it it was unbelievable just going you know cancer of not knowing anything about it realistically and then um, that big C word hitting you and um, and then it was just overwhelmed from there on in um, a lot of nights spent uh, crying myself to sleep with my wife in the hospital bed sort of thing. So, yeah, it was tough times. I can only imagine how tough it was. Um, when you were first diagnosed, were you presented with a lot of information? Um, not really. Um, I think uh, in in hindsight, I think the doctors did a really good job on giving me information of what they could because uh, when I did get diagnosed, uh, I was told that I had the rarest cancer in the world and that uh, there's not, not a lot of information on that um, and that it was just very unusual and um, a lot of people don't un like rare cancers don't get a lot of uh got get a lot of funding or informational studies done on them so um it's very hard to to navigate you know through that process so I, I, you don't really get a lot um and at that point in time I was taking every bit of information I could um so yeah, on my cancer, especially sarcomas as well, we're pretty unique in that that we don't um, we don't get a lot of information, and if we do, it's probably a little bit generic, which again doesn't really coincide properly with the sarcomas because they're a completely different behavioural cancer themselves. So, so from from diagnosis to now. How many surgeries have you had? You know, how has your health plan looked? Um, so I've had brain surgery. Um, they do call it 
technically stereotactic radiation is, is form of surgery, which is like a cyber knife to the brain for other tumors. I've had that twice. I've, I had my hand surgery, so I had a palm, um, a tumor, which again was the primary, uh, which I had since I was 12. Um, that removed, I had one of my abdomen removed, um, which was just getting in the way for everyday life and uh, ended up having a hemorrhoidectomy as well, which was a result of um, treatments and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, you, you certainly the body goes through some rigmarole over its time, yeah. So you mentioned that your um, family moved in down the road. You know, everyone kind of took this on from a family point of view. But how did you position your diagnosis with your friends, you know, sort of external of the family circle? Um, that's probably a really good question in how important that plays a role in um, dealing with cancer because your environment's so crucial. And I think that um, for me, it, it, it's I've always been just open, and I and everyone knew. Um, but it's the the reality of people thinking you're going to die um, as hard as that is, you know, you, the, the look in their eyes, your best friends, the the amount of time you've got left with them, um, all of these things. And you've like, I'm, I'm originally from New Zealand, so all my cousins and stuff are, are over there and whether they're going to make the trip across to see you and some family did and then you've, you've got this amount emotional waves flowing through you, which are um, con- constant, you know, that's it, the um, the mental health aspect of it is really, really tough. So, um, but yeah, I, I was always just open and um, and it was hard for a lot of family as well. It's it's super tough on friends and family. Mm-hmm. So, so as you said, you know, you're, you're trying to go through – the journey, your body is being put, you know, to its tests through all the surgery. And then you're also trying to have to manage everybody else's expectations. And, and as you said, do they fly and see you? Is this the end? You know, did, did Rachel or any of the family stand as a bit of a gatekeeper to sort of help manage that for you? Uh, yeah, I did. I, um, my wife, I just she's angelic, and uh, she she managed a lot for me on um, a lot of the communication from when people were wanting to see me and and that sort of thing. Always sort of went through her, and she checked with me and um, whether I was up to it or not, and that sort of stuff. So um, I also had my sister and my mum, which did a lot as well. And and there was sort of a lot of background and underground, you know, communication going on um, without me needing to um, be involved in all of it. I'm pretty unique in that situation where I feel that um, that I've had such wonderful support. Um, all the way through with that and um, also especially in particular with sarcomas is that I am of an elder you know a bit bit, bit older so you know 28 years old is a bit different to being a teenager like um, and, and having to cope with that sort of stuff as well so um, yeah. Did um did your cl- clinicians and uh, MDT did they did they sort of support you with 
mental health care and nutrition and, and, and wellness? You know, was it, a, was it across the board, the information that they provided and helped with? Um, no, uh, I, I'm not going to bag my immediate clinicians because I think on reflection, um, they've been super wonderful. I, I was very fortunate that I was in mining at the time and I had private health and I pretty much got um, top of the pops treatment when it comes to, I had a sarcoma specialist, which is you know pretty unheard of these days because we are only 1% of cancers. So um, I was very fortunate like that. And he um, was very honest about how my treatment was. The, you get told about the Cancer Council um, and having uh, talks with that and, and, and dealing with that sort of thing. But um, my wife went down that that track and, mm-hmm. and got support. Um, but she didn't, again, she didn't find it that helpful. Um, but it is there. So I, I recommend everyone to do that. It's, it's part of... Rachel and I's dream and aspiration is to help other cancer patients um, with the knowledge around that because I'm still here five years later and we've learned a bucket load of medicine. And um, it, when you're when you get a diagnosis of stage four and you've you know you've, you've got likelihood of weeks to months. So, I mean, I've got paperwork to say that got less than twelve months way back then, but. Um, all all you want to do is heal and it doesn't matter which way you'll try everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I've tried so much and, and that's the bottom line. You just want to heal. Um, and it, yeah, it, it can be a hard reality when you go through that process that you don't get the, the full circle of holistic help, you know, mm-hmm. um, healing available. So, so research and, and added on to your other program, I guess, is what, what's worked for you, hasn't it? Doing, doing both. There's this whole world of medicine and health that we um, we just strangely don't look upon. Um, but I'd, I'd like to change it. We'll mm-hmm. get there. You'll get there. I'm sure you will, Luke. Um, how are some of the ways that your cancer diagnosis have changed your life? Oh, well, I mean, it, it's changed so much about my life. Uh, pretty much my um, my integrative doctor said, calls me Luke 2.0 because, you know, I was this big, you know, 146 kilo man that uh, worked in the mines and was pretty stoic and didn't really, not really in touch with his feelings and all of that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, all of the experiences that I've been through from working with the beautiful nurses, um, the 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 other patients that are in the same position, the you know sitting in chemo wards and on the chairs, and all of all of those experiences change you in in ways that I can't even you know shorten into a, a simple question and an answer. But um, it, it's just made me value life so much more and more of the important aspects of of life, which is primarily about myself and my own environment. So, um, yeah, all for the positive. I wouldn't change a thing, funnily enough. I just, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm really glad about the person who I'm becoming and, and, and the change that it made for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Luke, yeah, Luke 2.0, I like that. Um, and, you know, you're not the first person I've spoke to for the podcast who said the same. You know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't change it because life and, and some of the, the great things in life are, are much clearer now. Um, and they're much more present for and sort of 
appreciative, I suppose. Um, I wanted to ask you, I, I, I realise, you know, you've just said Luke 2.0, but what do you miss about your pre-sarcoma life? Um, oh, that was a tough one. I, I really don't miss a lot. Um, I've recently come up and tried to get back to normality, I suppose, what, what everyone else would call normal. And, um, and it hasn't really worked for me. I, um, it, it would be nice to be cancer free in my body. Of course. I mean, I've, I still have tumors through my body and that sort of thing. Um, but there's not a lot, I money's just an object and my heart's full of love and, and happiness. So, um, I don't really miss a lot about pre-sarcoma life, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah. How did you find the standard of communication throughout your treatment? Was it, you know, was it pitched appropriately and accessibly? Um, yeah, I, I, like I said, I had a really good um, oncologist to start with as a specialist and he gave me excellent, honest information. Um the scope was narrow, but he, he gave me great information and, um, and the, the, the scope's so small, you know, like rare cancers. Um, we, we contribute to over 50% of, um, cancer deaths every year. And there's over 180 different types of rare cancers. Um, so we're a major part of that, but we we don't get the information. So he he didn't have a lot to translate across, and and he was open and honest. So um, I I've no issues there, and I think what he did translate was really well to me. And and um, and I I would thank him for it. I actually, I still communicate with my nurse there because I was part of the trial, and we're great friends. Um, but I, I'm yet to go back and see him, and it's probably been three years since I've seen. I mean, he was a lovely man. We we chatted. He had tears rolling down his eyes, sort of just trying to keep it together when he um, when I last seen him because he was like, you know, it's time to go and seek palliative care and um, you know all of that sort of stuff. Get, get everything tied up. So you you've you've got a, an amazingly positive outlook on this whole experience, um, and I can't even imagine the journey that you and Rachel have gone through. But you know, what are some of the major challenges that you guys experienced in your work or, or family life? Um, for me personally, it's uh, living with cancer is the hardest. Um, it, it's taken me such a long time to be able to. I I um I've. <laughs> I went into a, a mindfulness coaching level one course and it taught me how to listen um, to my own thoughts and, and where I was going negative and positive and red zone and green zone. Um, put in some, gave me some tools there and, and then straight after it, I did a mental health first aid course. And on the back of that, um, you don't do any diagnosing there. It's just the first response and how to help mental health patients. But um, it pretty much lists all of the, the different forms of mental health and and uh, and the different types and how you get clinically diagnosed with it. And I was going through the list. I was like, tick, tick, tick. <laughs> I've had it all. You know, I've nearly had it all. It was crazy. And um, I think living with cancer is the tough one, knowing that you've got 
this foreign object, abnormal cell division in your body. And um, from mentally having to put that aside and um, continue on with life when you get these these um, hard diagnosis and uh, yeah, that, that, that's really tough. And um, we went from uh, financially, we went from being rather well off and claiming life insurance and then um, doing bucket, li- uh, bucket list stuff to, to, um, to tickle it off and stuff like that. And um, ending up having to sell cars and on Centrelink and rock bottom and, pretty much you know bankrupt sort of stuff so the the range of difficulties and struggles is very large um and it and it's continuous when you get that diagnosis it doesn't just stop uh, and uh it, it's been a, it, it's tough and um you don't really get that full support um out there um, and it's very hard to know how to support because everyone's different and everyone's case is um, unique well yeah so rare cancers and sarcomas and all of that sort of stuff and a whole list of them we, we go without so um, there's the, the range and the scope of how hard it is um, is is wide and um, yeah but living with cancer mentally myself that's a tough one that, that was hard to get round and, and get over. Um, Luke, uh, we talked uh, before about fertility and how we would touch on it during uh, the interview. Um, you know, this is obviously something that that mainly, I suppose, people presume is a is a female area, but it's not going into cancer treatment. It's it's you know affects um, men and women. Um, had you contemplated a family prior to your cancer diagnosis? Yeah. So uh, leading up to to um, me being diagnosed, I my wife and I we went through four miscarriages, um, and then uh, I got diagnosed. Um, Pre going on the trial, which is a, a cytotoxic drug like chemotherapy, I um, I actually went to the sperm bank and had free. You, you get a year's free um, donations for to, to move on with, um, and then uh, I didn't actually follow that up. So um, I just I just thought you know bringing kids into this world would have been um, really quite tough uh, under the circumstances and we always sort of wanted a family and that sort of thing but we had to prioritise both of our, our health because um, Rachel's health and the, and your carer's health is equally as important mm-hmm. and then we've come to the point now where I'm actually looking to go and get tested again to see if my swimmers are if I've got any good ones left to to start a family again because we're at the stage now where it'd be a blessing if we could bring um, uh, someone into this world and and give them our love um, and not be selfish about it and anything like that so um, it's it's a long journey and we're open to whether we have kids or we don't it, it, it's not going to affect us health or happiness wise we just we're now open to it now mm-hmm. and um but that's that's been a long time coming yeah you know that's yes. five years down the track so but at the time you were happy with what was offered to you and how it was all explained is there anything um for any uh, young men listening that you would like to to impart from your experience about fertility oh um you just never know. So it, it does no harm just to go and um, get 
get it tested and um, get some stored away. And uh, when you're under, it's not, you don't have to worry so much about the outcomes of, of um, having children and that sort of thing. It's just, it's best to be um, prepared and give yourself options. That would be um, my looking at, at that. It's, um, it's not selfish at all. And um, yeah, I, I'd highly recommend keeping your options open. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for that. Mm. Um, what what would your final message be that you'd like to to leave um, for someone who might have been recently diagnosed that's listening to the podcast? Um, take care of yourself. You know, prioritize yourself and your closest loved one. Um, but make you make sure you prioritize your own health, and you have to learn to love yourself. It's as cheesy as it sounds, but um, the more you love yourself, the better you, your your world's going to be. And and for heaven's sake, don't listen to the categories that they place you in with diagnosis. Because um, as my story goes, uh, anything is possible, and there's always options. That's the other key take: is there's always options out there. And um, the science is moving forward, and the the treatments are moving forward. And um, there's you're only as good as the doctor sitting across the desk from you. So um, gain as much as you can, and 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 be happy about life. Yeah, just keep your options open. You know, love yourself and enjoy every every moment of life. Luke 2.0, very very wise words. Thank you so much for that. Um, oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for all of your honesty um, and sharing your journey. And yes, been a pleasure chatting to you. And good luck to you and Rachel with uh, with all family future endeavours. Yes, good luck. Sarcoma Awareness Month is a time when we acknowledge those who are currently undergoing treatment and their families, survivors, those yet to be diagnosed, and the memories of those who walked this road, fought valiantly and tragically lost their lives to this cancer. Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation wish to recognise each of these brave individuals, together with the remarkable not-for-profit organisations dedicated to raising funding and awareness for sarcoma, including Rainbows for Kate, Kicking Goals for Zav, Hannah's Chance, Stony Steps Against Sarcoma, Joanna Sewell Research Grants, the GPA Andrew Assini Research Grants, and the Sarah Grace Foundation. With the generous help and support of the Australian community, each have worked tirelessly to fund critical research and to further shine a light on sarcoma.